Hi, everybody. It's Jody Bugath, president of the Americas at Personetics. Welcome to another edition of the Banking on Innovation podcast, where we engage leaders who have driven customer-centric innovation and impact. Few people personify that more than my next guest, Harit Talwar. Harit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jody. Harit was former CEO and chairman of Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Harit, let's just start by introducing Marcus. What is Marcus? <laughs> That's a good question because we can't assume everybody knows about it, much that uh, you and I know it well. Marcus is Goldman Sachs's global consumer business. Um, uh, most people are not aware that Goldman Sachs got into consume, the consumer business in 2016. Um, it is a modern digital consumer platform inside a 150-year-old investment bank. And the goal is to serve tens of millions of customers, meet their financial needs. Uh, it's around, you know, we launched towards the end of 16. So I guess it's around five, six years old. Uh, and it has, uh, I'm no longer with Marcus, but it has around, uh, I think, 16 million customers. Um, it has more than $120 billion in consumer deposits. It's got around 12 to $14 billion in consumer assets, and the mismatch is deliberate. Uh, I think it's got revenues in the $1.5, $2 billion range. It's in the public domain. They expect the revenues to get to around $4 billion uh, by 2024. And so I would say... Uh, of course, despite my bias, I would say it is one of the most successful fintech startups, either standalone or inside any large organization in the last few years. Uh, so that really is Marcus, Goldman's consumer business, a modern consumer digital platform inside a 150-year-old investment bank. It's an amazing experience, and I'm excited for you to share some of those learnings in that journey with the audience. But before we get there, let's let's talk about your career before Marcus. You've led a eclectic and remarkable career before Marcus. You spent many years at City and Morgan Stanley working in multiple countries and then you were president of Discover Cards. What did you learn during those times about the industry that motivated you to lead the creation and the development of Marcus? So these are all fabulous organizations I was fortunate to work at. And I learned some positive things and I also learned some not so positive things. You know, uh, on the positive side, I learned that you cannot create sustainable, growing, rapidly growing, profitable franchises unless you are obsessed about customer centricity. And I've been part of businesses which did that and have thrived very well continue to do so. And I've been in some businesses where the commitment to customer centricity and growth was not perhaps as much and maybe more on um, financial engineering and profitability. That doesn't cut it. You have to be obsessed about the customer and you've got to be obsessed about growth and you've got to be obsessed about profitability. And there is no, they are symbiotic. They are not contradictory. The second thing I learned is that uh, talent, uh, technology choices, 
and product customer segment choices. What are you going to do for whom? Having clarity on that is very important. Uh, equally clarity on what you're not going to be doing. And I think very often uh, organizations, particularly banks, get confused as to what they're trying to do. And they land up doing uh, everything for everyone or not enough for their core customer segments. And that's not great. But what I learned is uh, just before joining Goldman to create Marcus, uh, I was the head of one of the most successful card businesses in the country, perhaps in the world. And the card business in the US uh, is very, very competitive. And everybody knows, to exaggerate a little bit, everybody knows what everybody is doing on an everyday basis. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and the competitive intensity in the industry is to be one better than the competitor. Somebody is giving X rewards, you give X plus. Somebody is right. giving X pricing, you do X minus. Somebody is doing X balance transfer, you do X plus. So the competitive intensity is to remain ahead of the competitors. And perhaps we've lost sight of what the customer wants. We are so obsessed about the competitor that we are less obsessed about what the customer really wants. And, you know, I can be accused of maybe this is a sweeping statement and perhaps it is. And, you know, uh, I would rather provoke your audience to reflect on that rather than be polite about it. So <laughs> what was very exciting about joining uh, Marcus was that here was an opportunity to create something from uh, with a blank sheet of paper. And Goldman Sachs had a structural competitive advantage that we could operate like a fintech because we had no legacy distribution, no legacy technology, no legacy business practices. We weren't used to having large branch networks, which are dinosaurs today. If anybody thinks branches are not a dinosaur, I think they are probably wrong. Um, we didn't have legacy business practices of charging revenue from customers, which you shouldn't be charging, like overdraft fees and things like that. So we truly could operate like a fintech because we had no legacy. And yet, on the other hand, we were a bank, we are a bank, we have a regulatory compliance, risk management, capital management DNA. And I think while these things may not sound very sexy, they're absolutely critical to be a successful disruptor in a regulated industry. So the duality of risk management, bank, balance sheet, with the ability to operate like a startup was our advantage. And not often do you get the opportunity to do that. And also, um, we were clear while the consumer business is not going to become the core of Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, but it is going to be a very significant extension of its franchise. And uh, whether you like Goldman or not, and there are many people who like and many don't, but it is arguably the number one brand in global financial services. 
and it's 150 years old. And so to be able to get uh, to, uh, the opportunity to do a significant extension of a 150-year-old brand, uh, which is also number one, and to build a business which is truly going to be customer-centric, that really was the excitement. Really quite an amazing experience, I'm sure. And I was fortunate enough to be, to actually meet you in the early stages of Marcus. And I, and I got to experience your leadership approach and the way that you engaged, motivated teams focused on on driving a new experience and value for customers firsthand. And I was so pleased to be able to do that. But why don't you share with the audience, what did you have to change about the way that you led and drove change when going from a big FI to a challenger institution, albeit amongst a, uh, a broader institution like Goldman Sachs? So I think starting a challenger um bank or a challenger fintech or a challenger organization in every any industry uh, requires a certain evolution of mindset. I won't say change of mindset, but evolution of mindset. Uh, you want to leverage what you've learned, but you want to not be a slave of your history. Uh, very often we become slaves of our past and our history and want to repeat the same things. So I'll share a few things. One is you've got to have clarity of your mission and what is going to be your competitive advantage. And I spoke about the structural competitive advantage, but that is internal. How do you translate that to the customer? So we were very clear that our goal was not to create another existing successful financial services institution. No disrespect to any of them. We learned a lot from a lot of them, but they were not our role models. We wanted to do to consumer financial services what Amazon had done to retail or Apple had done to music, which is it was my belief or our belief that Innovation is not in the narrow definition of the product, but it is in the distribution and consumption experience in the customer journeys. And that is what helps you build a different business model. So, for example, the shampoo you buy at Walgreens or the shampoo you buy at, on Amazon is the same shampoo. Or the music you, you know, uh, just because it was iTunes music, compared to those old big vinyl records. It's not that Beatles or Elton John started singing different songs, but it was the way you could consume that music, the way you can consume. So what Amazon did, for example, in my mind, from the outside in, it combined the uh, traditional strengths of retailing, you know, inventory management, supply chain management, merchandising, etc., with a fusion of engineering data and design to create a different business model. So we wanted to combine engineering data and design with traditional banking skills to create a different business model. So, you know, our savings account is going to be the same as somebody else's savings account. Most of the features are uh, prescribed by the regulators. But how do you package it? How do you deliver it? How do you service it? It is that where the innovation lies. 
So the first thing was, who do you look to for inspiration for how you want to build? The second is, what kind of talent you hire? So um, we were looking for unicorns, people who have an ability to think ahead, but also have an ability to dirty their hands. Unlike in large banks uh, or credit unions, you don't have multiple layers of organization. You cannot have a senior person who's not willing to dirty his or her hands. And therefore, finding people who have the ability to think in a forward-leaning way, but have an ability to dirty their hands, to have a CTO who is as comfortable leading engineers as he or she is coding him, himself or herself, to have a chief risk officer who is as comfortable providing judgment and guidance uh, to people and to regulators, but can intimately understand how your data models are going to be built or not built. So that is the kind of talent you need uh, in a startup uh, as against. And because you've got to create, you're not optimizing things. You've got to create. And that is uh, a different challenge. One can argue whether it is tougher or simpler, but it is a different challenge. And it's fascinating to hear you say that in terms of bringing all the pieces together to create a successful business. That includes the, the proposition, the operating model, which includes the distribution aspect, the customer experience. And then, of course, in your case, also the, the backing, the financial backing to be able to get to scale. And so it's, it's interesting how you were able to put those pieces together. It's much more than just having an inspiration or you know, having a vision around a better experience. It's the, it's the ability to, to connect those pieces in a way and then the talent to be able to support that in a way that not just drives success, but will allow you to get to scale as well. Correct. See, vision, mission is cheap. <laughs> Many people have it. It's rhetorical. It is what politicians do in various capitals around the world. Okay, execution counts. Execution and grit and grinding it out. And that is important. Harith, what are you most proud of and what's your greatest disappointment in Marcus? Well, I think what we are, what I'm most proud of is six years ago, nobody could have thought that the world's preeminent investment and trading bank will have a consumer business. People inside were not sure. People outside were not sure. They thought it could not be done. And here we have a business which has a few thousand people, a few billion dollars of revenue, double-digit millions of customers, um, a customer balance sheet between deposits and loans of over $100 billion and all in the last six, seven years. So that's number one. And an ancillary of that is, uh, and HBS has written a case study about us, how do you innovate inside a large organization? Okay. So uh, I think creating that... Um, 
I'm very, very proud of Goldman's culture and Goldman's support. Uh, truly am. I'm equally proud of how Marcus has also influenced Goldman's culture and way of doing business. So, uh, you know, uh, at a more, um, not frivolous, but a more uh, uh, funny level, when we joined six years ago, um, uh, the first week I wore a suit and tie, the second week I gave up my tie, the third week I gave up my jacket, two months later, all of us started wearing jeans and sneakers. And when you walked into the Goldman lobby at 200 West in Manhattan uh, six years ago, you could make out who are the consumer types and who are not. <laughs> Today, when you walk in over there, everybody's wearing jeans and sneakers, uh, you know. So we've influenced the culture um, and the firm allowed us and gave us that permission. But, you know, equally, uh, we built our entire technology stack uh, in an agile manner. We did all our product development in an agile manner, not waterfall. Today, the firm is doing that. Uh, we were one of the first um, uh, major production system to be on the cloud inside the firm. Today, the firm has embraced cloud computing much more. So I think what I'm most proud is that we have created something which the world thought we will not be able to do. I'm proud that Goldman Sachs, we imbibe the Goldman Sachs culture. I'm proud we also influence the Goldman Sachs culture. Uh, I'm extremely proud that uh, of the partnerships we have, whether it's with Apple, Amazon, General Motors, because our business model was both direct to consumer as well as uh, embedding ourselves in other people's ecosystems. So our card is embedded into the iPhone. Our card is embedded into the automobile. We think automobile is going to be uh, in the years to come, not just a transportation mechanism, but actually a platform to engage customers. And for us to be part of that platform is a real opportunity. And we are very grateful to our partners. I think I'm very... Um, proud of the fact that we have won JD Power Awards, both in cards and in personal loans, number one. So it's a validation of our obsession with customer experience. Uh, we've built talent, which is uh, already recognized. We are a five, six year old organization. The talent we have built is very recognized, both inside the firm and in the industry. And uh, the way we built, I think we built the most talented and diverse team in the industry. A third of our people came from traditional consumer financial services, like, you know, as you can imagine, Chase, City, Bank of America, uh, Discover, American Express, etc. A third came from within Goldman Sachs, uh, where people raised their hand and wanted to be part of this venture. And a third came from uh, what I would say non-traditional, whether it is Apple, Google, Netflix, Hulu, um, you know, Michael Kors, Victoria's Secret, etc. So it was a very eclectic group of uh, people we brought together. And that's not easy because everybody speaks a different language. And everybody thinks that what they do is the most important thing. Uh, 
and sometimes don't have enough appreciation of what the others do. But if you can, through communication, get them to gel together, it is a very powerful combination. Now, on the disappointment side, I would say not really disappointment. I would talk about challenges. And I would say there was a challenge every week. Okay. When you are building a business and at the pace at which we built and at the scale we built and the customer quality that we have built, um, you're going to have challenges every week. Uh, my view now is that challenges or crises is a great project management tool. If you have the same challenge or crisis every week, it means you're stuck. If you have a new challenge or crisis every week, it means you're making progress. So actually, I have learned to embrace challenges as a fantastic project management tool. That's really, really valuable um, wisdom. You know, also the ability just to extract learnings from those challenges, because that is where you really can can create learnings that will set you up for um, uh, for addressing future challenges and, and navigating through pitfalls as well. So let's shift now to something that's near and dear to my heart and uh, and certainly Personetics as well, which is applying artificial intelligence and machine learning in the context of driving value for customers. In fact, you said companies think that the future is all about data or AI or design, but the future of financial services is really about translating those into extreme customer centricity. How do you ensure that this occurs? And what are the challenges that FIs face in delivering on this outcome? The first thing I would say is it begins with, it is true, I said that. In fact, I said it's not, the future of finance is insane customer centricity because we get carried away. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big believer in AI and data and machine learning, et cetera, and design and simplicity. But those are all means to an end. They are capabilities. What is important is are you solving real customer problems in a simple and transparent manner? See, customers have a distrust of financial institutions. More than 50% of customers don't trust their credit card. More than 70% of the millennials would rather visit a dentist than visit their bank branch. Now, I don't know about you. I don't like visiting my dentist, no disrespect <laughs> to him. But, you know, people would rather do that. Um, so banks have made things complicated for customers and simple for themselves. Um, banks like to think that they're in a very sophisticated industry. In some ways, they are prim we are a primitive industry compared to other industries because we don't make things easy for customers. We try and add some mystique and say, oh, this is banking. And frankly, the issue is not regulation. Regulations are not the problem. They, in fact, many times help in making things simple. Um, so, so that's one point, that we have to make things simple. The second point is how we philosophically treat data. When people give us money in their savings account, we use that money for various reasons in our balance sheet. 
But we always recognize that it's customers' money. When customers give us data, we think it belongs to us. It doesn't belong to the customer. No, we are a custodian of the customer's data. And we must respect that. The third point is that how do we make AI and machine learning make things simpler for the customer rather than more difficult? How can we use it to understand her, understand him, understand their needs, not do silly blanket marketing? In fact, I don't like that one should market. One should keep things available to the customer and let them decide what they want. Um, in all this, the other thing which one needs to remember is there's also, I think, the creepiness factor. If you know too much about the consumer, and we can today because data sources are so rich and machine learning capabilities and technologies and models are so sophisticated, but you've got to be careful in it has to be something which makes them happy because it solves a problem. It is not something which is solving your revenue goal or your expense goal. It is something which is you will get revenue, you will get expense reduction, you will get revenue increase and expense reduction. You'll get it in a more sustainable way if the way you want to do it is to improve the experience and empowerment of the customer and let them decide and choose. So the actual mechanics and the modeling and the capabilities and the coding may remain the same, but it depends on how you approach it. It is like, you know, in my early, in my days at Discover, which is a great customer experience brand, um, we wanted to move everything to digital. But you don't do that like some cable companies or some airlines do that if you call me, I'll charge you $20 if you don't, or I won't pick up the phone or things like that. No, you do it by making your digital capabilities so good that the customer doesn't need, feel the need to call you. But when the customer does call you, it's a moment of truth and you must give great experience and not put them through mind-numbing IVR decision trees. That's wrong. Uh, you reduce cost and increase revenue by making things simpler for the customer, not by putting roadblocks for the customer. So just to be provocative, and I know, Harit, you're also, you know, a masterful uh, marketer around customer value. But I believe that the days of the kind of banal marketing banner will give way to insight-driven advice where you're providing evidence to the customer around why you're engaging them, what you're offering them why that's valuable to them and using their own data to show evidence as to why that's the case. I agree, Jody, completely. You know, we did a lot of research and we spoke before we did our first uh, 
customer acquisition or first product, we spoke to more than 10,000 consumers directly or indirectly. And over time, I think, at least when I was there, we spoke to around 100,000 consumers. This is just to keep in touch with what they want. One of the big things we learned was, and you know, we could spend a full day talking about learnings about what customers want. But one of the things which we learned was the white space was to demonstrate that you are a brand and a financial services organization which is on your side, on the side of the customer. Because customers feel they're okay if banks want to make money and charge fee and pricing and all that. But they think that banks are in it for themselves and not for the customer. When banks make them sign lengthy legal documents, they don't understand what they're signing, but they just think that they have no choice and therefore uh, they're giving away all their rights. So you have to demonstrate to customers that the real opportunity is that you are a brand which is on their side, an organization which is on their side. And this is through research. This is not uh, sitting in a room and coming up with copy. Okay. Uh, this is through uh, very rigorous mathematical research and analysis. The next level is that to demonstrate to people that you're on, your, on their side, in every transaction, you must deliver value, you must be simple, and you must be transparent. And simple and transparent is most important. Um, how many fields you will use for account opening? How clearly you will explain your pricing and your charges? Uh, all those things matter a lot. So, Harit, we've interviewed 5,000 consumers of primary banks, and our research suggests that 58% of customers might switch to a competitor for better money management features. What do you see as the next frontier of applying data and, and AI to enhance customer value and the experience? You know, I don't want to sound like uh, saying it ad nauseum, but the frontier is simplicity. You know, you have the iPhone. It continues to go from strength to strength. It is because of how simple it is to use it, how embedded it is in people's lives, and how many things you can do with it beyond the original purpose of it being actually a phone for calling people. In fact, if you go on to the settings of the iPhone, um, uh, you have to go almost halfway through the drop-down menu till you uh, come to the phone option. So, yes, 58% of the people may be willing to switch to another bank or another financial services institution for money management. And that's great for challengers like Marcus, and we love it. But the question is, how simple can you make account opening? How simple can you make account switching? How simple can you make account servicing? 
how transparent will you be in the money management advice that you give? What is going to be your cost and fee structure? The customer doesn't care whether you're using cloud computing or you're using Sun Microsystem of the past. The customer cares, what are you going to do for me? And really, the so that is important. The second thing is, every bank has an app now. And your app is on the phone. And does your app work as well as other apps on the phone? So banks tend to compare how am I compared to my branch experience, my web experience, other banks' ex experience. But the customer's thinking, how is this app working compared to other things that I'm doing through the same phone device? Um, so changing your competitive mindset or comparative mindset is important. The third thing is because everything is going digital, and everything is going mobile, um, data flows have to go back and forth very fast. And the problem with legacy banks is that information can't flow back and, f uh, 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 back and forward because the pipes are corroded. And the problem is that to uplift your legacy technology systems, you cannot not do it but it is very expensive and complicated to do it. And there is no immediate ROI in doing it. So they are really stuck. I also think that, you know, in US, we still have around, I don't know, 7,000, 8,000 banks. Uh, we talk about the bigger getting bigger, but actually it is still a pretty fragmented industry. It is large, it is fragmented, it has bad customer experience, it is complicated, it's got legacy technology, so it is ripe for disruption. Um, you know, it's not like the search engine where beyond the first two, there's not even probably 1% market share. It is not like the colas where beyond the first two, there's probably not even 1% market share, okay? And it could very well happen like in the retail industry, um, you know, there's been hollowing out of the middle. And maybe that'll happen. I don't know. So I think people have to decide what niche they're playing in. But there are too many banks trying to be universal banks. And I'm not sure whether 10 years out, that will play out well. Fascinating. You know, we're, we're actually in a very fascinating time right now. This, let's call it this period of transition where, where I believe there will be greater separation between leaders and laggards. We have rising rate environment, putting more money in motion, inflationary fears, economic pressure on, on households, um, more competition. As you said, there's, uh, there's legacy technology that's, that's holding back innovation in some cases, how do you think the banking industry will change during this period of transition? The strong will survive and the incompetent <laughs> won't. <laughs> Simple. 
You talked about simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for too long, I'm an operator. I'm not a banker or an investor, but for too long, businesses with doubtful revenues and doubtful profitability and doubtful risk algorithms have attracted very high valuations. Um, I think the focus will be on substance. Focus will be on the strength and quality of their customer base, but also the strength and quality of their management disciplines and not everybody will survive. And I think overall it may not be bad for the industry for certain disciplines, certain level of discipline. You've given us so much valuable insight. Let me ask you for one more bit of forward thinking. What will customers demand of their banks and credit unions in the next three years that the industry is not yet prepared for or not fully prepared for? So I don't think it is any technology that they will need, which doesn't exist. Okay. Uh, it's not that they'll suddenly want, you know, retina eye scan to sign on every check. Frankly, that also exists. But so I don't think it is a question of a certain technology or a certain model or a certain uh, invention. I think what they're going to demand is how do you make my life easier? And if you can't make my life easier, should I go to non-banks who may make my life easier? And I don't think that large technology companies will want to become banks. No. You know, your PE multiples come down if you become a bank. So they will not want to become a bank, but they will want to insert themselves more in the customer financial journey. And I think what the banks are not prepared for is to answer the question, who are their competitors? And who are their customers? And who are their partners? And learning to operate in a world where customers, partners, competitors become a little blurry and you navigate through that. It's not a question of preparing the next technology or preparing the next um, risk model. You have to keep on doing that. Don't get me wrong. It is uh, navigating the world to be where the customer is, not expect the customer to come to you. Harith, I want to thank you for your wonderful 
color and insights that you've shared with our audience. You bring this 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 amazing blend of forward thinking and innovation with customer centricity and a real operator mindset. And I think that what you've learned and shared throughout your journey, it's it's so valuable for us to understand. And I'm sure it's been a remarkable experience. And I just want to thank you for sharing it with us. I know you don't do very many podcasts, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I don't do many podcasts. I couldn't say no to you. Uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, sharing these uh, stories, insights, views, observations is the easy part. Uh, I would just finish on the note that execution, execution, execution is what matters. Great. I hope our audience has taken away the the, the grit that's needed to be able to deliver and perseverance. And uh, I'm just so pleased that um, you've been able to make such an impact on our industry and uh, really for, for customers of banking. So thank you. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast. It was great to chat. Thank you very much, Jody. Thank you for joining another episode of Banking on Innovation. Make sure you subscribe to get future podcast episodes or follow us on Twitter at Personetics or on Personetics.com.